Part four, section one of the sinking of the Merrimack by Richmond Pearson Hobson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part four Prison Life in Santiago and Observations of the Siege. Section one containing the tramp from Morro to Santiago, the new prison, the writer's comfortable quarters, a visit from the British Consul, sad news of Acosta, first tidings from home, the first meal in the new quarters, a bit of child life. By sunrise next morning, Tuesday, June 7th, we were off for Santiago. I found my men waiting under the entrance archway, and I formed them in column of twos, and we marched out with military step, a guard of about thirty soldiers with us under the command of a lieutenant, one-third in front and the rest behind. We broke step on the hillside and filed down the same path by which we had come up. I had already decided which features of the harbor defense I would observe with special care as we passed, but upon arriving at the head of Estrella Cove, to my surprise and disappointment, the leaders turned inland. It was evident that we were not to be taken up by boat through the harbor, as I had expected, but were to tramp up by dirt road. I asked Murphy if his hip gave him any trouble, and whether he thought he could stand a long tramp. He was sure he could, and the whole party started out single file up the ravine that runs into Estrella Cove. One can hardly imagine the exhilaration we felt. It is true that we had been in prison only four days, but it had been weeks since any of us had been ashore, and it was our first tramp in Cuba. The tropical vegetation had special interest. There were shrubs and trees that we had never seen before, and we picked flowers of rich color from the path side, to the amusement of the soldiers, who seemed themselves to have no interest in life, nature, or, or anything else. However, they kept a keen eye on their prisoners. I measured the chances of an attempt to break away. We had the advantage of greater vigor, and I felt we could make a dash and overpower and disarm an equal number, or perhaps the ten ahead. But, uh... Twenty more behind. With bayonets and magazine guns were too many. I took careful note of the directions of the path, taken bearings by the sun, which could be seen, though screened with clouds, and examined the approaches on the right and left. The path would admit of the passage of artillery, and would serve either for an advance on the city from the south, or an advance on Morrow from the north. The heights on both sides of the ravine, however, would have to be controlled by advance infantry. For several miles the sides were almost perpendicular, presenting remarkable aspects of erosion by water, vast caverns having been cut out like those under Morro. One thought what lodgings they would make for ambush. While passing through the ravine we could see nothing beyond the steep rocky banks for about fifty yards on each side but finally the mountains back of Santiago loomed up ahead, and soon the ravine drew to a gentle rise on each side, and we caught a glimpse of the waters of the bay. We had covered probably five miles without seeing a sign of fort, blockhouse, trench, or pit, but as the path turned westward near the railroad there ahead of us on the left, a detachment of pioneers was constructing works to bear upon the path and railroad and across on the right, beyond the railroad, was a detachment of cavalry mounted on ponies, the first cavalry I had seen, so I studied them closely. 
The officer in charge apparently had something to say to the officer in command of our guard. We came to attention, caught step, column of twos, and came to a halt right face as the guard halted. My men held their heads up, marched with a fine sailor swing, obeyed orders with precision, and made an excellent appearance, well brought out by contrast with the Spanish soldiers. I felt proud of them, as indeed I did all through the imprisonment. I noted the critical looks of the Spanish officers and soldiers, looks that told of their interest in coming events. While the officers conferred, the water bucket was passed around, for although the sun had remained screened, walking was rather hot work. We started off as we had come up, and the looks of interest from the Spanish followed till we turned out of sight up the railroad track. Clearing a cut, the bay burst upon us, and there, quietly moored, in dark dignity, lay the fleet. The Cologne, distinguished by her single mast, seemed to have a special dignity of her own, at least to my fancy, that pictured below the surface of her wonderfully distributed armor and her remarkable machinery, combined with an equally remarkable battery. A launch was alongside of the Vizcaya, in front of the spot where the projectile had struck the day before, and it seemed to me that they were repairing damages. A fine merchant vessel lay farther up, and beyond her a number of smaller craft. The shore and approaches were attractive, with hillocks and valleys of coconut palms and a rich growth of grass, but above the keen sensation of the beauty of the picture was the pervading thought that the enemy had control, and I looked at everything as though I were on a reconnaissance. The hillocks each had a blockhouse, but there seemed to be no trenches or earthworks. I thought what magnificent vantage ground the hillocks would furnish for artillery to reduce the city. The railroad soon turned to the left toward the bay, and numerous dumping cars showed that it was used principally for ore. But the cars seemed not to have been used for a long time, and there was a general air of depression. We continued turning away from the railroad and began to pass huts, from which half-dressed children peered with frightened faces. I was making some inquiries about the inhabitants from the officer in charge of the guard when a cavalry detachment appeared ahead under a large tree, the troopers in the saddle and an officer standing near a carriage. The officer came forward to meet us and announced that he had been sent by the commanding general with an escort to conduct us into the city. He was a major on the staff of General Toral, I understood, and the troopers must have belonged to the bodyguard. One can scarcely imagine a more picturesque group, or one with more color. Blue predominated, but bright red set it off on borders, wristlets, etc. The colors might have been called gaudy, but for a very artistic arrangement in blending. The major asked if I would be kind enough to join him in the carriage, where another officer of the staff was waiting. I asked if he would allow one of my men who had been wounded to ride with the driver. He consented, and Murphy jumped up on the driver's seat. The guard from the morrow was dismissed, the officer in charge of it shaking hands with me heartily. I put Montague in charge of the little squad, with directions to keep step and preserve military bearing, and we started for the city the carriage being followed by the squad, the troopers riding along on each side with carbines on their hips. We flanked the city toward the east, skirting it on the south side. 
I could look down the streets for some distance without seeing any building of importance, the houses being more or less alike, small one-story structures with high windows and doors, the windows covered with iron bars outside, all of a kind of stucco, and the roofs of tile. Here again blue predominated, but there was the general light or white effect that I had noticed in Latin provincial towns and cities. At last we came up to the long two-storied barracks, known as the Quartel Reina Mercedes, situated on the eastern edge of the city, beside the large military hospital. We passed along the front of the barracks, and stopped at the door in the middle, the major saying that this was to be our new quarters. A major whom I took to be in command of the barracks met us. The major of the staff in the carriage introduced me, and turned over the prisoners, saying that our effects were on the way, and would soon be brought up. I have an expressed solicitude on the subject, as a storm had caught us just before reaching the barracks, and my men were wet. A guard conducted them through the entrance into the courtyard beyond, where they turned to the left, while the major showed me into the room of the officer of the day on the right. The two officers bade me a kind and courteous farewell, and the escort left. The major introduced the officer of the day, and ordered drinks for three, being rather surprised at my choice of a thirst drink, insisting that they had superior brands of cognac and rum. Luncheon was being served, and the major ordered mine to be served on the table of the officer of the day, given special direction to bring tablecloth, napkin, etc., with a bottle of claret, and the two officers sat by to entertain me as I ate. The major was called away soon, leaving the officer of the day and me alone. I did not know at the time, but learned afterward, that General Toral passed about that time, and observing the scene had the officer of the day put in solitary confinement in the morrow. Oh, I was astonished to learn this, for my host, as I soon saw, was waiting only till my room should be ready. It was opposite his room, beyond the first room which was occupied by the sergeant of the guard, and I could see soldiers sweeping and washing up while furniture was being taken in, among which I noticed with satisfaction a kind of cot bed, an iron frame with canvas stretched across, the frame rising up to hold a mosquito net. A sister of charity came with it, and I knew that it had been brought from the hospital. When we were through with luncheon, the officer conducted me across to my room. Over the entrance were the words, Sala de la Justicia, which indicated a court-martial room. It was large, airy, and bright, with a big window looking across the road over the country toward the mountains to the east and northeast. It was freshly whitewashed, with an asphaltum coating at the bottom of the walls that, drying, gave it a wholesome odor. As we entered, the sister was given the last touches to the linen. She had evidently been detailed to see the room fitted up with regular furniture of an officer's room at the hospital, and it was a beautiful sight to see the pains she took to have everything dainty and orderly. As she left, she slipped a little package on the table, a cake of guava jelly. Of all the kindnesses and attentions I received, none touched me more deeply. The jelly lasted a long time, for I husbanded it, taken only a very little after each meal. It kept before me the picture of those devoted sisters ministering in hospitals and prison and 
wherever else there is human suffering upon the earth. The officer of the day withdrew with assurances that he would be at my service, near at hand, for anything I might wish. When the sister left, the sentry closed and bolted the door, and placed himself on the outside, abreast a round hole cut at about the height of the eye, then came the peculiar sensation to which I could never become accustomed of having an eye watching me all the time. This surveillance proved the greatest of all impediments in my plans for escape. It was not long before the cart arrived, bringing our effects from the morrow. The cot was no longer required, so it was folded and put against the back wall. The small table which I had used as a washstand now served for a dressing table, while the larger table answered for a sideboard. Chairs had already been provided, and with those from Morrow there were enough for a reception, two rockers and four or five others. The room was so large that there was no necessity for removing anything. My quarters were certainly in marked contrast with the cell of the Morrow, and there was everything to contribute to cheerfulness and comfort. But the fine view from the window could not make up for the loss of the sight of our ships and the majestic sea horizon. I was walking up and down when a carriage drove up and a fine-looking gentleman of superb build alighted and came into the barracks. Soon the officer of the day opened the door and announced the British consul. Mr. Ramsden met me with a hearty, though undemonstrative, greeting, and I soon perceived in this man the finest flower of human kindness. He said he had received my letter of the previous day relative to the prisoners being kept in the morrow, and had gone at once to see General Linares, that he had seen General Toral, who gave assurances of removal, that the matter had been settled upon the return of General Linares, who had been down at the morrow during the bombardment. Ah, I thought, General Linares, then, had been in the morrow, and had left us exposed when he knew morrow was being fired on had left me up in the most exposed of all positions, when by a word and without any difficulty he could have had us all placed in a position of complete safety. He went on to say that General Linares told him, as he had told Captain Bustamante, that he would not visit me for fear that he might not afterward be able to do his official duty. Mr. Ramsden said he had just come from a funeral which had detained him somewhat. A very sad funeral, he added, a Spanish commander, a fine fellow, who had been mortally wounded in the bombardment, the executive officer of the Reina Mercedes. Not Captain Acosta, I exclaimed, and a great rush of pain and grief swept over me. Acosta, who was so kind to me. Yes, it was he. The gallant fellow was forward on the Mercedes when a shell entered and exploded, killing five men and wounding a number of others, probably the very shell which I had remarked. The surgeon ran at once to Acosta, whose right leg had been cut off at the hip, but Acosta put him away, directing him to attend first to the groaning seamen. There was no hope for him. He lived about two hours and died with the fortitude of a brave man who had done his duty. I felt a void, a great personal loss, as for a dear friend. It is strange how short a period is necessary in wartime to make a place in the heart for one who has the fine traits of the true soldier. 
with the thought of acosta's death i could scarcely enter into the spirit of the subsequent conversation we talked chiefly about the bombardment mr ramsden had seen it from his country house between the city and the morrow and had been most impressed like myself with the thirteen-inch shells and their manifestations of power being particularly interested in the sound of those that striking proceeded on tumbling and making pulsating puffing sounds like a switching locomotive he said the mercedes had received the greatest punishment having been three times set on fire that men had been killed at the morrow but that though some of the guns of the sea batteries were literally buried the batteries had not suffered material damage to mr ramsden's inquiries as to my wants i replied that about everything required for comfort had been supplied but that i should be very much indebted if he would use his good offices to help bring about our exchange requesting him to call attention to the many prisoners at manila he assured me that everything possible on his part would be done i requested that application be made for my men to have the same privileges as at the morrow in the matter of cleanliness and health and the consul said he was on his way to see them he made a cheerful atmosphere and i knew from his first visit that we should receive the benefit of all his influence personal and official mr ramsden had been gone only a short while when the officer of the day brought in a cablegram sent in care of admiral severa the sight of it made my pulse quicken as i divined that it came from the united states it was a message of kindness from the southern society of brooklyn the first that reached me and i felt then that we were not being forgotten by our countrymen and my hopes for an early exchange rose i sat down in the rocker in front of the window and looked out at the lengthening shadows and the softening light as the sun sank lower there was a pervading stillness and a sadness seemed to overhang nature kind and noble acosta to be cut off so soon soldiers came and went passing my window which i soon saw was a vantage ground of observation for all movements and operations to the east and northeast of the town from time to time small groups of infantry and cavalry came up to the entrance some came in others stopped only for a while all were only a few yards from where i sat and admitted of the closest scrutiny many officers and privates came regularly and day after day i would study these groups along toward five o'clock soldiers set out from the entrance carrying large tin buckets usually two went together with a pole between them resting on their shoulders and supporting two buckets leaves lay over them but it was not long before some of the contents spilled over and i discovered that they contained boiled rice and boiled frijoles the barracks i saw was being used to supply provisions for troops round about later after the arrival of our troops cartloads of boxed provisions were sent out i was not long in discovering that the barracks was being used also to confine military prisoners there being seventy-five or eighty in confinement at the time and that there was a hospital service in one portion perhaps for the overflow from the military hospital these services seemed to be more important than the barracks service proper the number of troops coming and going varying from time to time promptly at five o'clock a soldier came with my meal and in a well-trained manner 
spread a tidy tablecloth, placed a napkin, and arranged knives, forks, and spoons for a regular course dinner. I had him place the table in front of the window so that I might look out while eating. He put the morrow table to the rear, using it for a side table, and stood up behind me, changing the plate as required. It seemed rather strange to have a coarse dinner in prison. There were seldom fewer than three courses, frijoles, rice, and beef, and sometimes sardines. Then for a long time a, a bit of the guava jelly, and for a while fruit, which the British consul sent. When the courses were through, the attendant cleared the table and served a small cup of hot black coffee. I would change my chair, taking a rocker, and sip the coffee, looking out over the landscape, and for the time only the double row of bars reminded me that I was a prisoner. Those bars were a great nuisance. One series is bad enough, but two were exasperating as the eyes and head had to go through a course of gymnastics before a clear-away channel of sight could be had, and even then the slightest movement set a bar across one eye, and the effort to clear it through a bar of the other series across the other eye, and all the while an enticing landscape lay beyond. As the dinner hour approached, a number of children gathered around the entrance, bringing pails of various kinds to get the rice and frijoles left by the soldiers. They ranged from five to twelve years, and were of all colors, black, white, and indifferent. All had some amount of covering, some full cover, some half cover, others quarter cover, and some a smaller fraction. They were thoroughly democratic, without respect of color or amount of covering, and being comparatively well-nourished, were full of sport among themselves while they waited, a most interesting picture to watch. That was a marked day for them. As each newcomer would arrive, the others would point out the officer behind the bars. They formed in groups to look, and the close observers could make new discoveries from time to time. Gradually they came closer and closer. One, a, a little girl with large, thoughtful brown eyes, looked a long time without saying anything, and then came closer than all the rest. She was certainly not more than eight years old, but she had her hair up, with a long Mother Hubbard gown that came nearly to the ground. Her face was delicately molded, and with her remarkable eyes she formed an appealing picture. I made a guava jelly sandwich, and told the attendant to hand it to her. From his looks he apparently questioned the wisdom of doing it, but upon my order obeyed. The little girl's eyes sparkled but she had scarcely taken the sandwich when there was a wild scattering of the groups, and she ran frightened faster than the rest. The sentry at the entrance had seen and given chase. I jumped up, but he stopped, probably not venturing to leave his post farther. I little appreciated then how innately suspicious the Spaniards are. I learned afterward that, up to General Linares himself, they thought that I had on foot a conspiracy with the Cubans in the city, and after the first day no one is allowed to pass on the quartel side of the street. Two young Cubans, boys of about fourteen, who happened to be passing, evidently on a harmless stroll, the following Sunday afternoon, though still on the far side of the street, stopped to look out of sheer boyish curiosity. The British consul told me afterward that these boys were put in prison, 
and that the sentry and sergeant on duty were put in solitary confinement in double irons. End of part four, section one.